So welcome, friends, to our podcast podcast, the the interestingly named podcast. So, podcast number 16, podcast episode 16. So then, um, I just saw today on online a story about uh, another fracas on a college campus somewhere, and um, and you realize that our higher education um, system is coming apart, in, uh, falling apart. It's in tatters. It's uh, it's disintegrating, and in this particular controversy, where people can't handle uh, intellectual debate, they can't handle um, people on campus. Um, arguing for a conservative or a biblical or, or traditional position. I had this, uh, I had this happen to me. If you, if you um, have a chance, uh, get a hold of uh, uh, Free Speech Apocalypse, um, it, a documentary that was um, made about uh, an encounter I had at, at Indiana University in, in Bloomington. Uh, I, was invited to, I was invited to go there and... Uh, uh, well, actually, my wife was invited to speak uh, for a women's group at a at, at a church of, uh, pastored by a friend of mine, and uh, Nancy doesn't travel without me traveling too, and so we we like to travel together, and so I was tagging along. She was the speaker, and I was tagging along, and my friend thought, oh well, since Doug is here, well, why don't we um, why don't we have him give a couple of talks up at the at the university uh, for our student campus group, and, and I, so I. We, we agreed that I would do a couple of talks um, called Sexual by Design. And uh, I don't know how word got out that I was going to be doing this, but word did get out and opposition started, uh, opposition started to develop. And, uh, and then ardent opposition started to, to develop. And we started, we started to realize, hey, there, there's going to be, this is going to be a thing. Um, and so we, um, uh, brought some uh, camera guys along, guys to record the, the action. I was able to speak at, on on the campus of Indiana University, but the only reason I was able to speak there was because uh, there were about twenty cops involved. And so, uh, if when people tell me that liberals have a um, a commitment to free speech or the principle of free speech, uh, my reaction is, yeah, right. I'm the one who was not able, I would not have been able to stand up in a classroom uh, lawfully reserved by a particular group and articulate a position and argue for that position had there not been 20 policemen on hand. Uh, So it's very plain to me that that there is no progressive commitment to free speech. Well, the story I saw today is uh, someone was... um, uh, was claiming on some campus somewhere, I forget which one it was, they were claiming that free speech is genocide. So when when you argue that, that different positions ought to be able to have their say, um, that is equated with uh, a, a genocidal approach. Free speech is genocide. And the thought struck me... Um, and I think this is—I think it should be obvious by now. But I—I want to press this. Um, the the higher uh, well, let's call this uh, the documentary I mentioned is the free speech apocalypse. I think we're seeing the higher education apocalypse. We're seeing we are seeing higher education 
college education, university education in North America disintegrate. It's falling apart. And it's and and the people who are driving it have we the tendency is for us to think, well, let's just let them run. Let's just let it get sillier. And it's eventually going to get silly enough that they will see it and they'll quit. So if if we just let them go and just be uh, silly and ridiculous, at some point everybody's going to be lying there on the sofa panting after their fit, and they will say, "Okay, maybe maybe we went too far. Maybe we need to dial it in a little bit. Maybe we need to reel it in." Um, well, it's becoming apparent to me that this movement, this uh, temper tantrum, this frenzy of cultural Marxism has no internal braking system. There is no way to stop it. This is a runaway train. It's a runaway train coming down the mountain. The bridge is out, and there is no way to stop it. Um, so if we say, well, let's just let it go a little bit more. Surely they'll see how ridiculous. Surely they'll see how terrible it is. Surely they'll see how contradictory it is. And the answer is, no, they won't. This is the sort of thing that can only be stopped. This, it can only be stopped by the application of external force, external pressure. This is not something that has any kind of internal, uh, any kind of internal governor, any kind of internal uh, restrictor. So, um, if someone tells you that. Uh, to if, if you're walking around breathing and you're a white person then you're inhaling somebody else's air and you're exhaling your racism if you are a white male then it's racism and sexism if you are a white male christian worse and worse and worse and and so basically simply being male is rape simply being a christian is a, uh, a crusade or a, or a witch trial simply having an opinion that differs from the acceptable leftist progressive opinion on campus is genocide you you may not disagree you may not you may not disagree you may not challenge you may not you may not and so um, we think they're lying there, drumming their heels on the floor. What, why? Man, could we talk with you? No, they say. That's genocidal. Can we appeal to you? No, that's racist. Can we, uh, can we get together and talk this out? No, you're evil. You're vile. You're, you know. And I think at some point someone's going to say, you know, uh, no matter what, if no matter what I do, if I try to appease you, I'm a racist. If I try to accommodate you, I'm a racist. If I try to cooperate with you, I'm part of the establishment, I'm the man. Then it seems to me that if we're going to be condemned no matter what we do, we might as well be condemned by you having shut you down, having shut having said this is ridiculous, we're going to we're not going to tolerate this kind of frenzy anymore. And that's what it is. It's a it, it's a frenzy. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a conniption fit. 
it's an out of control um, spasm that has no way of of taking control of itself. And so control must be imposed from outside. And uh, I'm not saying that it ought to be imposed. If someone says something that, uh, that we disagree with, I'm not saying that we ought to send in the riot police. You only send in the riot police when people are rioting. Well, then what do you mean by what, what, what do you mean by stopping it from outside if you don't mean uh, billy clubs, if you don't mean riot police? Well, I think you, you should only have riot police when people are rioting. Um, if, if these people are saying what they think, uh, then do I think they ought to be forcibly shut down? Well, yes, in a manner of speaking. How, how, would, I, how would I shut them down? Well, you can depend upon it that every time people are saying ridiculous things, ad absurdum uh, somebody's paying them to say it in other words all we need to do is cut off the the cut off the financial supply people are doing the um, the people who are doing this are not that stupid the, the the it looks pretty stupid but the really the real stupidity is um, found in the people who are paying them to do this and then are surprised when they do it so uh, I think we need to cut taxpayer funding to every absurdity that we can find. We just we just need to walk down the line, turning all the spigots all the way to the right. Um, and when you turn everything off, when you turn, turn off the flow of money where we stop funding that which is being used to attack us, I think it's going to be astonishing how uh, rapidly it all comes to an end. So, a writer that I've enjoyed uh, reading over the years in many different ways, many different settings, is an interesting gentleman named uh, George Gilder. George Gilder has has uh, popped up in a number of interesting places, and I think he must have an interesting story to tell about his own uh, pilgrimage. He began as something of a liberal, um, a liberal Republican, and. Uh, he wrote a book in the, he was not a Christian, and he wrote a book called Sexual Suicide. And in the course of writing that book, um, he was converted, became a, a Christian. And then that book was later uh, released again under a different title, updated and released under the title Men and Marriage. And that's the, that's the book I want to talk about. But George Gilder made has made different um He's made different kinds of splashes. So in the in the 80s, he was um, he wrote a book called Wealth and Poverty, which was very influential during the Reagan years. Uh, that was a very uh, good book, Wealth and Poverty. Uh, he also has been uh, a driving force behind the Discovery Institute, which is uh, the institute that has been promoting um, uh, in, uh, intelligent design. So he has, um, has taken on Darwin um, in his work through the D- Discovery Institute. And he's also, um, uh, I would describe him as a, something of a technophile. Um, he has written uh, a number of books on techno- technological uh, development and progress. And I always find him uh, an engaging read. I always 
come away blessed. I always come come away with something that I can uh, take to the bank. So that that said, let me go back to one of his his, uh, his early book, Sexual Suicide, which later came out as Men and Marriage. And it was from this book. I, I read it in both forms. I read Sexual Suicide, and then uh, later I read Men and Marriage, I think maybe a couple times. And uh, I need to insert something a little uh, little autobiographical thing uh, here. Uh, George, I, I had a, a gig one time um, where I had a little radio column uh, across the across the state line here at KWS, KWSU at Washington State University. There was a, um, a radio station there, KWSU. And I had a um, weekly radio column, and, uh, and I would write up this uh, conservative voice radio column, oh, probably 300 words or so. And um, this would be delivered over the airwaves and on uh, uh, public radio over in in Pullman, Washington, and one time, I um, I repeated on the air uh, something that I had learned from George Gilder, something that I had learned from uh, this book, from from Sexual Suicide and then Men in Marriage, and uh, and that was this, and and this is so I blame George Gilder for me getting sacked, I, which I. Uh, I said this on the air, and there was a hue and a cry. Uh, there was up, there was just a big uproar, and people were clamoring for me to be let go, and uh, and so I was. So, what did he say? What did I say uh, that I learned from him? Well, he said that men are necessarily uh, in a position of dominance. There's nothing you can do to keep men from being dominant. This would go back to Rush Dooney's uh, inescapable concept. Uh, it's not whether men will be dominant, it's how they will be dominant. And uh, G- Gilder argued that if you outlaw constructive dominance, if a society has uh, figured out a way to harness and uh, use in constructive ways um, masculinity, masculine aggressiveness, uh, they have they've harnessed something that has a great deal of power and energy and they can use it constructively. If in the grip of feminism you outlaw constructive dominance on the part of men, you don't get passive men, you get men who are destructively dominant. The, the, instead of, uh, they, they, quit being, they don't quit being dominant, they quit being constructive. Um, so let's say you have, uh, I think Gilder points this out. Let's say, uh, in first grade you have, um, uh, the girls have, um, are about nine months ahead of the boys when it comes to fine motor skills. So the girls as a class are generally way ahead of the boys in, um, the sorts of tasks that are set to you in first grade. And so who is dominating the classroom uh, according to the rules in first grade. Well, if your memory of first grade is anything like mine, it's the boys in the back row muttering and the girls up in the front row with their hand up knowing the answer. So, oh, teacher, teacher, call on me. The, the girls are uh, smart, capable, on top of it, and within the rules of the classroom, they're running circles around the boys. Um, so, that being to the boys, obviously intolerable, uh, the boys 
then channeled their energy into being the center of attention anyway. Uh, enter uh, spitballs and tipping over chairs and uh, misbehavior and, and so on. Uh, if, if boys cannot, boys are competitive, and if they cannot compete within the rules, then they compete outside the rules. They, they break the rules. They, they become a hazard. They become a threat. So if you look at, um, look at society and ask yourself, what's the, what's the, what's the sexual ratio um, in our state penitentiary systems? How many men are in the penitentiary versus how many women are there? And when you find women in prison, ask yourself, how many, uh, how many of them are there because of some guy? Right? So men are fully capable of behaving in a disruptive way. And Gilder says we, we have to go back to the system that, um, that restrained masculine aggression, tamed it, and made it productive, made it constructive, made it something that's good for society. But you can't do that uh, by outlawing it. You, you cannot outlaw male dominance and then expect to have pleasant things happen. And this is just another example of um, some, someone who's got a clear mind and a courageous heart willing to say, uh, willing to say things that are radically unpopular. So, um, Men in Marriage, I commend it to you. Uh, great book. Uh, the word heresis is where we get our word heresy. Initially, it meant uh, faction or sect, but over time, it became closely identified with that which helps sects to form, and that is a distinctive false doctrine or teaching, which the sectarians then used to distinguish themselves. So the, the initial impulse for the uh, heretic was to be off here in our own group, it was a sect. It was a sectarian impulse, uh, but if you want people to gather around you, um, you need a flag to fly, and so consequently, it was not. Um, it was not surprising that at some point, at a very early point, uh, people began coming up with a distinctive flag to fly, and that distinctive flag for the sect to fly was often a distinctive. Uh, was often a distinctive doctrine. So the faction or sect of the Sadducees in Acts, 15, uh, Acts 5, 17 is referred to once. So the Sadducees are called a sect. There was a faction of the Pharisees who had believed in Christ, that's in Acts 15, 5, who were also promoting the false notion that Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become Christians. And Paul identifies himself as one who had been a member of the Pharisaical faction or sect of the Jews, Acts 26, 5. So the Sadducees are a sect. Uh, Pharisaical Christians are called a sect in Acts 15. And then uh, Paul was a member of the sect of the Pharisees. So with the, with the idea that turnabout is fair play, the Christian faith was identified as just such a sect by the orator Tertullus. He calls the Christians a sect in Acts 24.5 uh, when he made his presentation before Felix. Uh, 
in 24.14, when Paul is responding to Tertullus, he says this, But this I confess unto thee, that after they after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, Acts 24, 14, which they call a sect. Okay, now, so um, the later sense of the word heresy, um, the sort of the post-Nicene council use of the word heresy, Paul is not referring to that here, which they, they call, the, the mainstream Jews are calling the Christians a splinter uh, sect, a splinter faction. And Paul acknowledges, okay, they call it a, a faction, um, but I'm, I'm worshiping God. The Jewish leaders who met with Paul at the very end of the book of Acts had also heard the Christian faith spoken against, and they called it a sect, Acts 28-22. So notice that a lot of these uses uh, are coming to us from the book of Acts. They're, they're historical uses. When Paul writes the Corinthians, he laments the divisions among them, but then he goes on. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19, For there must be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. All right, there must be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, it's not clear here, uh, it, is not, uh, it is not clear here if the problem is simply uh, fractiousness or fractiousness coupled with error. So you've got um, so someone could be orthodox and sectarian. Um, in fact, sometimes there are people who are so uh, strict in their orthodoxy that they they necessitate no no church is pure enough, no church is clean enough uh, for them, and so they are they're sectarian in their mentality, but. It's orthodoxy that they use to create the sectarian, uh, um, that sectarian reality. Um, so it's that's possible that has happened, but generally it goes the other way. Generally, you, when you have fractiousness and, and combativeness and a lot of disputes, someone is going to cook up some distortion of the truth in order to make his group a little more distinct, and um, that that. Um, version of the truth is frequently an error. So in the book of Acts, the word heresis is referring to what we would call a sect, uh, an organized group that's, that's got a, its own identity and, and it's, a, it's got its own splinter identity. In 1 Corinthians, we may have the um, beginning of the modern use of heresy uh, creeping in. When Paul says there must be heresies among you, um, be, there are people within the church trying to separate themselves out, and the way they would do that most simply would be uh, with error. In Galatians uh, 5.20, uh, Paul lists heresies as one of the works of the flesh, right alongside adultery and drunkenness. In such a context, it's likely that he's now including the idea of false doctrine, which would be leprosy of the heart and mind. So um, uh, it's now it's possible that he's just talking about a fractious sectarian spirit, but I, th I think that we're um, I, th I think we're getting into the area where um, distinctive doctrines are are developed. In Second Peter two one, we have the clear element of falsehood included in a condemnation of this particular vice. 
Uh, so, so Peter says this, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. So uh, the, at this place, the, the, the modern sense of false doctrine as the instrument for carving out your sect is, um, is very clearly present. False prophets, false teachers are clearly not orthodox here. Um, so you, you excluded are the orthodox but divisive people. These people are divisive and heretical. The, uh, the history of the Christian church has shown us more than one example of this sin without the doctrinal uh, element. Uh, this sin is it lines up with the early scriptural descriptions of it. In other words, church history has had the Galatians and the first Corinthians and the second Peter forms of it and church history has also seen the uh, version of this sin as we see it in the book of Acts so the Donatists for example would be one the Donatists would be one example they were rigorists who became sectarian in attitude uh, this is a sin but it's not as it is not as grievous a sin as the latter manifestation. The term heresy generally is taken on the meaning that Peter gives it uh, in Second Peter. This is the idea that a, that a group distinctive in practice should also be distinctive in theology. A group distinctive in practice should also be distinctive in their theology, and in order to be distinctive in their theology, it's necessary to depart from the faith once delivered to the saints. And so this means that it's not just a mistake to believe that Jesus is not divine. It is also sin and disobedience to believe that Jesus is not divine. It's a work of the flesh. It is, um, it is part of the fleshly, carnal mind. God in the time of the sickness. God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.